So we are on Clubhouse. We are on Instagram Live, on Discord, and welcome. Um, it looks like we have three people who've already submitted um, questions for uh, tonight's show. Um, if you're on live, it's always more fun to, for me to hear you ask the question, and plus I can follow up and engage in a little bit of dialogue. Um, so why don't we go from there? Uh, looks like our first caller is uh, Steve Hacking. Looks like you had a question. Yeah. Hi, Ken. Can you hear me? Hey there, Steve. How's it going? Yeah, yeah. Good, thanks. Good, good, good. Excellent. Uh, Welcome. Thank you. Um, thanks Thanks for having me. Um, and it's, it's related to the fascinating book, um, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. Mm -hmm. um, I read about two weeks ago the first time. Um, I thought it was uh, really interesting. Um, and Diego's questions, I'm very intrigued about the answer. Well, um, and the first question was uh, recommendations would you give to pursue the characteristics of the positive aspects of each archetype, but without overjudging yourself? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question. And just um, for uh, reference for people, if, if you're not aware of um, the book that we're discussing, um, it's a book called King, Warrior, Magician, Lover archetypes of the mature masculine um, it's written by two uh, psychologists dr robert moore and doug gillette um, so uh, in the book they describe four four particular archetypes so there's the king the warrior the magician and the lover and if you're talking about the converse which is the female archetypes um they the the king kind of obviously is the queen um the warrior um uh, I, I believe is sort of like the the mother um the and then there's sort of a similar magician and sort of lover archetypes as well so they do apply to both genders but i think um particularly uh, in thinking about sort of the mature mask and it's written kind of obviously for that audience um so uh you know in um gillette and moore's point of view uh it helps kind of describe different aspects of of the self and also is it's kind of a framework for thinking about pathology or psychopathology of where sort of men go wrong. So ironically, you know, what a lot of people describe as sort of toxic masculinity um, in Moore and Gillette's conceptualization is really not uh, a, a masculinity, a toxicity that's inherent to masculinity, but it's really um, an immaturity, actually. It's, it's, an, it's not, it's, an, uh, it's a lack of masculinity, in fact. Um, so in Doug and um, uh, Robert's model, they talk about essentially as a boy, uh, as he matures into manhood or adulthood, he kind of goes through kind of these sort of um, immature uh, kind of boy archetypes. So an example of, um, you know, one would be, let's just talk about the warrior archetype, right? Um, there's different sort of uh, positive and negative polarities to it where it can go sort of wrong so if you think about kind of a boy who has like too much an undeveloped sort of warrior archetype that's the kid that becomes like a bully right um, and similarly if someone is very weak in terms of their warrior energy um, and is kind of a pushover then that becomes the kid that becomes bullied right and you see kind of both of those extremes obviously in any schoolyard around the world now, if you if you don't sort of mature into a proper masculine uh, sort of warrior archetype, 
which is centered around you know taking uh, action, discipline, uh, pushing towards your goals in a healthy and mature way, um, the warrior archetype would become um, in the the kind of uh, positive and by positive I don't mean good. Positive is in like the excess of it would become essentially a sadist or someone who's sadistic, right? So you could you could think about this as like the the soldier who like shoots up a village or the boss that's verbally and emotionally um, abusive to their direct reports. And so that's kind of an undeveloped adult sort of warrior archetype. And then conversely on sort of the negative and negative again, not meaning bad, but the absence of warrior, adult warrior energy would be someone who's masochistic, right? Um, and uh, punishes themselves, beats themselves up excessively. And so to your point, um, you know, someone who uh, is judging themselves uh, excessively, uh, you know, it may be sort of a re reflection of sort of a masochistic um, sort of lacking warrior archetype. So that's the basic framework. Um, I highly recommend folks actually read the book. Um, it's a it's a it's a very intriguing read. Um, you can obviously buy it on Amazon. And if you want sort of the cliff notes, um, Art of Manliness actually published a four part four or five part blog series that summarizes essentially um, these archetypes. And so there's a there's an essay essentially um, portraying each of them. I, I find it particularly interesting, particularly as a clinical psychologist, because um, it's not the framework that I use. I'm not a Jungian or I don't practice sort of psychoanalytic psycho psychodynamic therapy, which is kind of this older school um, school of thought that informs this book. Um, but it is um, it is an interesting explanation. It's not sort of empirically derived. And what I mean by that is um, I always tell people, are, are there actually four archetypes and are they a king, warrior, magician, lover? I don't know. And I don't think science has validated that. So is it a scientifically proven framework? Um, probably not. However, is it a useful framework, right? If we kind of transcend like the strictness of a randomized control trial or evidence, I would say it is because it does explain real world behavior that you see. Like if you see a bully on a schoolyard or a very demeaning boss, you have to ask yourself, why is that guy or why is that kid a jerk, right? And what do they need to not be a jerk? Um, and this provides a framework for thinking about that. So one thing, for instance, that I think is actually very useful is uh, Gillette and Moore talk about these as energies, almost as external to the self, right? It's not that the bully or the mean boss is intrinsically evil and it's an inherent part of their personality or character, but it's almost as if they're possessed. If you almost think about it like a spirit or a demon, not literally, but if you use that metaphor, if you're sort of possessed by these energies in that you have these energies, right? It, um, but you don't know how to sort of control it. You don't know how to channel it appropriately. You don't know how to apply it in a mature way. Then you'll become sadistic, right? And you become the, the bully or the mean boss, right? Where that tendency to like be impatient and you want to get stuff done and you want to push forward and you want to create something, that is good energy, right? But it can obviously be applied in a bad way, right? In terms of abusing people or obviously abusing yourself, right? And beating yourself up and how come I'm not achieving? How come not, I'm not uh, attaining all of these standards, right? So these are, if you think about it as energy and as external, it really becomes how do I channel that energy 
in a positive, pro-social and productive way. That's um, in an act, uh, sort of my philosophy way, it's all about whether it's aligned with your values or not. So an example of that is, let's say I, I say one of my values, one of my core things that are important to me in life are having close, meaningful um, relationships, right? So that's, that's kind of a, a key guiding light in my life. But my warrior sort of archetype or energy is not fully developed and I have a tendency to be kind of, um, you know, mean and sadistic as we're, t we're talking about. So there, there, are, there are choice points that come along. So let's say you're a boss and your employee doesn't finish a project in time that he promised he'd get done. And so that, that warrior energy to go and want to execute and win the battle um, gets sort of triggered because now you're upset that uh, someone let you down and there's a blockage towards your goals of not getting the thing done that you had asked to be done. So it'd be very easy to kind of fly into a warrior rage and go yell at your your employee and direct report and say, why didn't you get this done? And be very sort of sadistic and very punitive towards him, right? But that may be in conflict with obviously that value that I had mentioned of having, you know, close, meaningful relationships that are centered around caring about people. And so, uh, you know, I, I think in recognition of that, it can help. Um, so to answer your question, I think um, having contact and clarity with your values can help um, drive people away from automatic uh, tendencies um, and reorient them and say, even though right now in this moment, I feel angry because I, you know, wanted to go execute uh, this goal and this person is getting in the way of that and I want to go punish them because they're literally blocking me from getting the things I want to have done and I, I want them to feel the pain that I feel in a very sadistic kind of way. But that would create a, another kind of pain which is the cognitive dissonance of violating your values and the things that are important to you in terms of being a good boss and uh, you know having close, meaningful relationships with them. I think if you can um, recognize that in the moment, right? So what's happening is you're recognizing your, your thoughts and feelings of anger. You're able to diffuse from them in the moment and say, okay, I, I feel this way, but just because I feel angry does not mean I need to act angry, right? So I don't need to necessarily give in to impulsivity in that moment. I can kind of watch it arise. I feel red in my chest. I, I feel myself breathing really hard and I want to go yell. But in that moment, I ask myself, what do I want to be about in this particular moment? Do I want to be a jerk or an asshole boss that people live in fear of? No, that's, that's not who I want to be. That's not reflective of my values. And so you're going to take that energy and you're going to channel it elsewhere. Now, you may want to give them that feedback and say, hey, it's not acceptable to you know miss your deadlines, but how can I help you? Uh, what can I unblock for you? Why did it not go right? And what can I do to make sure that it doesn't happen again? Right. That's obviously a more mature conversation uh, that you'd have with your employee, but you're still obviously pushing them and making sure that you are meeting your getting your goals met. So that's the way that I would frame it is, you know, um, whether you call them personality traits or you talk about them as sort of king warrior magician lover archetypes they're tendencies they're predispositions they're not your destiny you're not fated just because you're not sort of fully developed uh in in some of these um that it automatically will drive your behavior um, and so i do think using certain tools and techniques 
So one of them that I mentioned is sort of diffusion, which is to not take thoughts and feelings literally, right? You can just recognize them and say, I, I, I see that I'm angry, I feel that I'm angry, I don't need to act on it. That's diffusion, essentially. And then reorienting towards your values, which is, okay, well, what do I wanna be about in this moment? How do I wanna treat this person? Uh, not because I'm socially obligated to even, but just because, because of how I wanna be uh, in this relationship. And then using that to take committed action towards, okay, I'm gonna give this person feedback, but I'm not gonna yell, I'm not gonna throw a tantrum, I'm not gonna abuse uh, this person, even though that burning desire may be there. So hopefully that's a concrete example of how I think one can start to mature um, you know, towards these things. Um, and if you're curious, there's actually a, a quiz that someone created online that can tell you how developed you are in terms of your king, warrior, magician, and lover energy. And at the end of the show, I'll actually put it into the, the channel. And so you can take the quiz and see, you know, where are you stronger or where are you essentially more mature on these energies and, and where are you kind of weaker and there's work to be done. Thank you. Sure. Absolutely. Make it, how about we make it a little bit more concrete? I know you, you, um, sort of, uh, you know, posted a little bit about your self-assessment. Um, about your own sort of warrior and lover and weaker than your king and magician. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I'm just curious how your your real, your lived experience of all, all of this is. How do you make sense of it? How does it apply to your life? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, the pr proviso that I read the book just over a week ago, so my uh, Fair enough. not that long. Um, but when I, when I read it, I, I, I was not only interested in... Um, the, um, um, the, the the pyramid within each each archetype, i.e., um, you know, the, the the more kind of balanced warrior versus the the, the masochist versus the sadist. But I'm interested in the balance between different archetypes, between king, warrior, magician, and lover. Mm -hmm. But even if you're doing you know a couple of them well, you've got drawbacks. And the some of the examples in the in, in the text. Um, were that um, you can be a great king, but you can lack passion as a consequence uh, because you're thinking about being fair and even across things. Um, and uh, I, um, I kind of self-diagnosed from reading it mm -hmm. uh, and uh, thought that I'm okay on king um, mm -hmm. and I'm okay on magician because as in my job, I, I assess companies. I need to right. produce a, I investigate them. I need to produce a fair view of them. And, and I've developed a skill base to do that. But um, it really resonated how the warrior um, required you to be um, really quite um, clear and, and often 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 brutal with decision-making, mm -hmm. um, to uh, cut things out. And I've got a tendency to keep things for a very, very long time. Um, the lover, um, I, I have a, a tendency to be balanced and you know if i'm honest um my wife would say sometimes too balanced um <laughs> so you know not being that person in the moment and grabbing the uh, grabbing the day um and I, I have sort of experimented by having warrior days and lover days mm. lover in the sense of that passionate passionate person right and it's eye-opening um and i did you know i had made decisions to cut things out and stop them as the warrior and make decisions about cutting clients that I that weren't valuable to me right um, and I've 
um, experimented, I know it sounds strange, but it's, it's almost acting as if by just staying in the moment and enjoying, um, I've, got a, I've got a little daughter, mm -hmm. um, and just enjoying looking at the flowers for my daughter um, as the lover. Um, and uh, it's very rewarding. Um, so th those are sort of tangible things, but I definitely see, um, if I think about it as one of those old fashioned um, things you had on stereos to make sure you're balancing across the, uh, across the different sounds, I'm I'm up on two levels. I'm up maybe on bass and, and down on treble. Yeah. Um, that that sort of rebalancing graphic equalizer, isn't it? Um, that rebalancing is definitely uh, something that I'm gonna yeah work work hard on. Yeah. Um, that's my lived experience of it and uh, early days, but but uh, positive days. And like, like you, I I, I lacked um, any sort of oh I when the evidence given in the book was mm -hmm. movie. You know that didn't show strong empirical evidence for the archetypes, but I guess he was making his point by using those movie scenes, um, right. and that's in and of itself to use them as um, um, you know good examples of immersion, if you will. Um, so you can kind of act as if by by uh, visualizing that. So right. um, that's my kind of lived experience example. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. It, it, you know. It's kind of funny. I, I was I was like having a little bit of self reflection, and I was like, you know, if someone is not familiar with this book, and he's hearing these guys talk about their king warrior magician lover energy, they'd be like, what, <laughs> what kind of hippie 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 shit is this? Um, but you know, if I actually reframe it and I said, okay, forget the jargon, because there is a little bit of jargon and symbolism in each of these things. I actually like it because you know when you describe a king there is almost a collective unconscious of all of the characteristics that that entails because you might have seen a King Arthur movie and there's a lot of qualities that literally in that one word, um, you know, paints a very vivid picture. The downside though is, um, you know, people are like, uh, this is very like symbolic and, and, and metaphorical and what does this practically mean? So for the, for the clients that have that, that are like really concrete, logical people, the way that I describe King, Warrior, Magician, Lover is really simple. I'm like, look, just think about these as values. You don't need to believe them as like uh, spiritual energies. I, I, you know, I'm a rational scientist, so I don't I, I, I certainly don't uh, take it sort of literally. Um, but the one a way that you can think about it is a king is just leadership. And I think most people realize, especially men, you're like you need some sort of leadership in your life, whether you're the head of a company or you're just the head of your family or you're just the leader of yourself. You need to be in charge. Um, so I think everyone can can gravitate around that warrior. I think is like, look, um, it's it's the part of you that needs to take action, and also it's your physicality, right? Like uh, if you think about it, you can warrior can represent your health, and you obviously need to invest in your health and your well being, uh, and get strong and do weight training and all all that stuff. So most people agree that's an important value. Um, the magician, if you think about it, that's the creativity and obviously your career your professional development. That's obviously a very important and valued domain in your life. And then obviously your lover is your relationships, both romantic uh, and close interpersonal relationships. So if you ask anyone who you don't, you don't have to be a Jungian, um, you know, is, is being in charge of your own life, is taking care of your health, is having a, a, a good career and learning and having close intimate relationships important to you? Basically everyone would say yes, right? And that's another way, of course, of, of, of diagnosing, as, or as you said, sort of self-diagnosing where you're stronger or weaker in these archetypes. Where, for instance, if you're indecisive, it's almost certainly a sort of a quote-unquote warrior issue. If you're not taking care of your health, I would say it's sort of a, 
a warrior issue and that you're you're not taking actions towards your health um uh and then same thing if you're if you're kind of anhedonic and meaning by that you're lacking passion or energy in your life and it's so ho-hum and you're just dragging yourself through the day and there isn't that passion and spark whether romantically or just even aesthetically right in terms of in like you said like enjoying time with your daughter or enjoying a beautiful movie then maybe you're lacking a little bit in that lover energy um so you can you can use it as a framework i i don't think they need to be um everything needs to be perfectly balanced like it's 25 25 25 25 and and all your energies need to be exactly the same i think in reality um and this is the beauty of like the diversity of mankind some people are going to be stronger in some of those energies than others so for instance obviously if you're a ceo you're you may be really stronger in king and warrior energy because you're obviously a leader of a company and if it's a startup you probably have to take a lot of decisive action all the time um while let's say you're 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 more of a creative you're a designer you're an artist you may have a lot more of that lover energy because you channel that or you sublimate that um even perhaps libidinal energy into your work so i i think it is it is okay that they're not perfectly balanced but i would say if there's great discrepancies that you see right where let's say if you take the quiz or as just as we're talking about this and you're listening and you're like ah you know yeah i am missing that that joie de vivre that that joy of living that i used to have when i was younger a student then it's like okay maybe i do need to do some work around getting in touch with that part of myself whether you want to call it the lover or not then i think that's a it's a clue about where you need to go i actually by the way really like your idea of like a different you can almost dedicate different days to enhancing that side of you which if you think about you know kind of culturally we kind of do that with the the artificial distinction between you know weekdays and weekends right where weekdays you can say maybe it is a little bit more magician energy we spend a lot of time on our careers our professional development especially as men and on the weekends you know hopefully um, if you have the freedom to to not work on the weekends um, that you can uh, get in touch with different parts of yourself maybe you're doing a little bit more workouts doing a little bit more warrior physical warrior um, and same thing you're engaging more socially uh, and romantically with the lover so uh, I do think compartmentalizing it, as you said, and making sure like, okay, let me let me dedicate a day to accentuating this part of myself or investing the time in doing things that are in line with that energy um, can be a good way of getting back in touch with the parts of you um, that maybe you've been, that you haven't known for a long time or, or perhaps even have been suppressing. That's the thing that I see in a lot of men in particular. I particularly work with a lot of CEOs in my private practice. They're overwhelmingly dominant in magician energy, right? I would say anyone who's really intellectual, really professional, that archetype, it like the energy, uh, it over overpowers or overwhelms. The, the way that I actually think about this, that it's, it's very useful, is in, in, in instead of thinking about them as energies, you can almost think about them as, um, you know, you're kind of a father to four kids right or or maybe even uh teenagers would be a better analogy four very rebellious energetic uh teenagers and you're trying to get them to all cooperate because you're taking a trip somewhere right so you're driving your suv 
and you got four teenagers and you can imagine <laughs> how uh, you know challenging that might be to get them all in line. Um, and they're all vying for different things. You know, they may be vying for your attention. Uh, they may be vying for who, who who's playing the radio. Um, and they may be fighting with one another. Like the two might be beating each other up in the back seat. Um, and to make that kind of real, you can think about how that actually applies to your life, right? Where if you're um, spending 40, 50, 60 hours a week on your professional career, which is understandable, the, the magician may sort of be the, the oldest brother and may crowd out all the other siblings in terms of dominating that person's life, right? And so you see sort of that imbalance um, happen over time in, in some people. And it suggests that, okay, in order to rebalance, like I said, it doesn't have to be perfect, uh, doesn't have to be completely equal. But if, you know, the magician is sort of coming at the expense of the lover, um, then that may be helpful. Or same thing, if having to be in charge um, you know, uh, comes at the expense of the warrior and, you know, you've started to become more and more indecisive, um, over time or not invest in your health because you're just like, oh, I'm so busy running my family or running my company. I can't sort of, you know, do the things that I want to do or, or need to do to take care of myself. Then it suggests that those are areas for rebalancing. So, um, I think that's a very useful way of thinking about it too, is, um, n notice sort of where there are imbalances in your life and what sort of energies or archetypes that corresponds to. And think about, uh, A, as you said, compartmentalizing it, giving different times that allow them to come out. So obviously like the hour a day that you spend at the gym, pure warrior, right? Let the warrior run free, listen to some heavy metal or some Jocko Willenick, <laughs> get pumped up and just, you know, let that sort of, uh, that teenage son sort of drive the, drive the SUV for that hour anyway. But obviously, maybe when you come home and you want to be attentive to your wife or your daughter, you're like, okay, I got to switch modes a little bit, be a little bit more into that lover archetype, thank the warrior for his duty, his service, right? Uh, in, in service of the king or, or of, of you as a whole or as an entity and say, all right, I need to calm down. I need to be a little bit more present. I need to be a little bit more caring, um, empathic, compassionate with these people let me sort of have the lover sort of take take over the the steering wheel so to speak so i think you can actually do that consciously right just like how i'm using that language you can almost like uh, uh, trip the switch in your in your mind um and say okay i'm gonna let this part of me or this energy kind of take the wheel take charge however you want to say it and and uh imagine how that that changes right because obviously maybe a warrior walks very forcefully, chest up, proud, almost like you imagine a soldier marching, which is a very different kind of a embodiment and body language than a lover would, which is gonna be softer, um, smoother, uh, just a different kind of feel, maybe warmer uh, in terms of how they talk, how they walk, how they feel. Um, and so if you can almost step into that picture and physically kind of step into that, when you literally open the door, when you walk home and, and, you know, see your wife and daughter greet you, they'll, they'll feel that they'll resonate that. And hopefully you'll act accordingly. Um, so anyway, we talked a lot, a lot about this subject. I think it's fascinating. We can continue to talk about it, uh, in further shows, but, uh, I, I'll, we'll share some resources for folks. If you want to dig in the, the quiz, the summary and the book, um, after we do this show, but, uh, let's, let's move on to other questions. And Steve, thank you very much for, for asking that one. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Really resonates. 
Absolutely. So it looks like next Rehan is up. Rehan, are you on the line? Yeah, I'm, I'm here. Um, so hey there. Actually, Welcome. Uh, hey, I actually asked a question um, about Winston Churchill on, on the last show. That's right. Unfortunately, unfortunately this next question is not going to be related to Winston Churchill. <laughs> Other, otherwise, we can have the Winston Churchill podcast on our uh, in, in my yeah, next exactly. life. Exactly. 40 reasons to look at, 40, 40 ways to look at Winston Churchill. Um, Gretchen Rubin, everyone should check that. <laughs> um, so, so my question is actually kind of, kind of uh, totally unrelated. Mm -hmm. it's, it's more so about therapy and, and finding help, right? Yeah. And I think there's a few really common bottlenecks as to why people can't find help. I mm -hmm. think, you know, one part of that is pricing. But I think uh, another part of that really is just this, this massive, you know, database of different therapists and psychiatrists and, and all of these, you know, psychotherapists that like have <clears throat> for people that, that aren't really aware of, of what all these labels are and then quite frankly what's quote unquote wrong with them or, right, or right. what the issues are, how would you recommend someone go about to find good help, right? Because speaking from personal experience, I've been through, you know, a series of, of different therapists that, mm -hmm. that quite frankly weren't helpful in any way, shape, or form. And Sorry to hear that. At the end of it, uh, yeah, and at the end of it, you're left with, uh, you know, kind of these massive bills that, that you're irritated to pay because there was there was nothing to come from that, right? So yeah. my question to you is, how would you recommend someone go out there um, not knowing completely what's going on with them, not knowing completely who they need to be able to kind of, you know, measure mm -hmm. success in terms of, you know, healing or whatever that looks like? How would you, uh, how, how would you advise someone to go out and find good help uh wherever it might lie and then this vast sea of, of of selection yeah great great question it's actually a really common one that i get asked um as a psychologist and psychiatry professor um by the way is this still something that you're facing are you are you like going through this process right now it sounds like you haven't found what you're looking for and are you, are you trying to find a good one currently <laughs> Yeah, so, so the reason I'm actually, I actually sent you um, a DM on Twitter uh -huh. that you were kind enough to respond to. I utilized that platform and actually, uh, like again, this the same bottleneck, right? There's there's a bunch of people that all claim to, to help you work through these things in life. Um, and it's really difficult, right? Mm -hmm. you know, some people will, 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 will charge you for a consultation that virtually does nothing. Um, so, so I actually didn't. You know, it was helpful because, you know, it's an array of, of people that, that might be able to help, but yeah. wasn't really able to find exactly what I needed or who I needed for that matter. So, yeah. so to answer your question, yes, it is something that I am currently dealing with. Uh, it, it, it might be selfish that I'm asking for myself. But I'm no, this is, it. hey, this is a call on radio show. I, I want everyone to ask self personal questions because I, I think it's much more interesting than uh you know just just asking random intellectual questions um i yeah. I, I i actually prefer it because then it feels like we're actually helping people uh this way yeah. um what was the platform that i recommended over the dms just to jog my memory um, yes i'm sorry it was it, like an act so it was everyone that practices yeah. acceptance and commitment therapy um the the yeah it, it was a i forgot exactly what the website was called if it's any help to you, the UI on, on that. Yeah, it's uh, terrible. Like the, the, yeah, it's terrible. It's like the worst, like the filtering system is like archaic. Uh, so if any, if that's any help, that's what the website yeah. was. 
So, okay, yeah, I, I, I remember where I was coming from with that. Um, uh, look, uh, unfortunately, good help is hard to find. Uh, that's the reality. And unfortunately, the quality, the variance of quality in the mental health field is quite wide, which basically means there are some really good therapists and some really bad ones, unfortunately. And I, I hate to say it as being part of the field, but it's it's the reality of the fact. And, and you've had that experience as well in terms of... Um, um, you know, not finding what you're looking for. I, I, here's the good news. It's not the modal experience. It, 80% of people who go to therapy say they're better off for it. Now you can, you can interpret that if you're glass half full or half, uh, 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 you know, empty kind of person Four or that, in other words, four out of five people are satisfied. One out of five people are generally not. So I think that's actually encouraging. And I think it's particularly important to tell that to men because men are the mo more reluctant to go to therapy, especially because they don't think it'll be helpful. It'll be a waste of time, waste of resources. The good news is, hey, look, if I had to take a bet and the odds were like 80% that my bet would succeed, pretty good odds to me. I, I would take that bet, especially if it's going to uh, inform the quality of my life. Now, it may not be always on the first hit or first try that you get that 80%. But I think that's the general, I don't think they're asking like, um, based on that, they're like, in general, has therapy been helpful to you? And most of the time it is. So that's the good news. Uh, the bad news is, um, I think you can increase your likelihood of it being 80%, 90%, 95% successful. Um, and generally the first, second try is if you do more homework upfront in terms of picking a therapist. So I would say, here are three criteria that are really important in terms of what you look for. Number one is, I always say, start with the financial aspect of it, is just make it clear uh, what you can afford because that will inform how you find the person and unfortunately, some of the quality as well. In that, if you're obviously very limited in your in your income, um, you will probably need to go through your insurance if you have health insurance. I hope everyone uh, does, then you know maybe maybe different if you don't. But if you do, then the best thing to do is to go through your insurance company, whatever it is, Blue Cross Blue Shield, go on their website, and then find that providers that are in network. The the way the nice thing about that is if you do that, depending on obviously the type of insurance that you have, you'll know how much you can pay. It could be a copay. Uh, insurance varies a lot. It depends on. It could be ten dollars copay. It could be a sixty-five dollar copay, or you pay fifty percent of the fee. Every every insurance plan is different. But it'll be usually substantially reduced for two reasons. One, if a psychologist like myself contracts with a health insurance company, we essentially have to negotiate a rate and say, you know, I'm providing a discount because the insurance company is providing me with a steady stream of customers. And so it's capped at a certain rate. Let's say it's 150 per hour. And I can't even legally charge, let's say my normal rate is 200 an hour. Um, I, I can only charge 150 through insurance and I can't ask the patient for the extra 50 bucks. So you know you're, 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 you're capped at that. And then second, obviously, the insurance should be paying the bulk of that if it's in network. So you can actually have pretty cheap therapy where it's like 10, 20 bucks a session uh, that makes it quite affordable if you go through your insurance. The downside though is if you're going through your insurance, it obviously is a much smaller pool of people. And the second challenge is once you start calling up those folks, a lot of those folks will be full or not taking any new patients anytime soon. So it does require a little bit of legwork to email, call people until you find someone that's like in your area, takes your insurance and uh, can see you relatively soon. If you have the financial means and blessing to be able to pay out of pocket, 
your odds of um, a, a your flexibility of finding people um, is going to be much better, and the odds that you'll find someone better. I hate to say it. Um, are better because quite frankly, you get what you pay for. Um, and unfortunately, 90% of mental health professionals do not take insurance. It's not because we don't want to, I don't take insurance because it's too much of a headache uh, in terms of paperwork and managed care and dealing with insurance companies. And plus it introduces us this third party that's in between you and the patient where it's, it's much better to have a direct relationship with someone and say, look, this is what I charge. Um, I can give you a discount, I can adjust it, but it's, it's, it's just you and me um, versus paying a third party that quite frankly doesn't add any value uh, to it. So the challenge is if you know that 90% of people don't take insurance and then probably 99% of the good people don't take insurance, um, I shouldn't say it's that high to discourage people, but a lot of the good people, quite frankly, if they're good enough, they have a steady stream of clients and you get paid more if you don't take insurance, so why would you? So there's a difference there is probably a little bit of a quality difference between people who take insurance and and, and those who don't. Uh, that may be an unpopular opinion, but there's probably a hint of truth to it. Um, you'll have more flexibility and choice. Most people in private practice do not take insurance. So uh, just kind of figure out your financial status. If it's more like I can pay 20 bucks a session, probably go the insurance route. If you can pay 100 to 200 a session, uh, go the private practice route and, and cash pay. You can always, if you're paying cash, also like, you know, negotiate rates to some degree. Um, like I work on a sliding scale with folks where depending on their income or if they're a startup founder, depending on their fundraising status, I adjust my rates quite a bit. I would say the variance, you know, for me is like sometimes 5X more for, uh, you know, the founder of a $100 million funded company versus uh, someone who's just bootstrapping a company hasn't raised. So I, I don't charge people the same thing to make it more financially affordable. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is look at their training, right? So um, again, this is a little bit of a generalization, but doctorate level mental health professionals are obviously more educated than someone who has a mas uh, master's degree and possibly in some states less than that. Um, but a psychologist usually has a PhD or PsyD, a psychiatrist usually has an MD or a DO degree. Um, and the quality of people who can get into a clinical psych program or medical school, because I train psychiatrists, is, is uh, quite high. Like I went to UCLA, which is the number one clinical psych program in the country. The acceptance rate is 3%. Does that guarantee that they're a good therapist? No, but you can at least guarantee that they're pretty fucking smart um, and at least is pretty knowledgeable and aware of what they're talking about versus someone who went to some for-profit professional school um, you don't know that. They could be really good, they could be really terrible. So that's what I would say is uh, look at their degree. Doctorate level people generally tend to be better, but of course there are some great MFTs, LCSWs, it's called a marriage and family therapist or masters in social work. Um, but I would say if I had to randomly pick a name out of a bag and one was a master's level person, one was a doctorate level person, more likely than not, the doctorate level person will be better. The second thing is look at what school they went to. Um, if it's a recognizable school, like I went to UCLA, you've heard of UCLA, it's the best public school in the country, um, probably pretty good. If it's Alliant or Agracy or some you know, for-profit university that doesn't have an undergraduate college, you've never heard of it, all they do is churn out uh, PsyDs, it's usually a bad sign because they're owned by Goldman Sachs or some other large investment bank and it's essentially a for-profit degree mill like Trump University. Um, I hate to say that, but, but there's some degree of truth to it. 
And the quality of those people is not good because those people couldn't get into a, for the most part, a legitimate, you know, university and they kind of pay their pay for their degrees. Um, also an unpopular opinion, but uh, I've seen it enough that I feel like I can I can say that. So uh, that does matter. And then the third thing that you're looking for is what's their orientation. And by orientation, I mean, like, what's the what's the framework in which they're practicing? We've been talking a lot about this King, Warrior, Magician, Lover stuff that comes out of a, a neo-Jungian or what's called a psychodynamic approach. If you like that stuff, then I would say try to find someone who describes themselves as a Jungian or psychodynamic therapist because they will probably get this idea of archetypes uh, and they'll work with you on that stuff. I actually don't um, because I, that's not the school of thought that I'm from. Uh, I think um, I generally focus on evidence-based behavioral therapies and by that I mean ACT, which is the one that I recommended to you, acceptance and commitment therapy or CBT or what's called cognitive behavioral therapy. Those two are considered uh, strongly evidence-based, meaning there's a lot of science behind them that works. So it gives you a degree of confidence that, especially if you're dealing with like a, a pretty standard issue, you're talking about depression, anxiety, um, there's a ton of evidence that uh, they work very well for the treatment of depression and anxiety. So uh, look at how they describe their orientation. Um, and especially if they have any sort of extra credentials to validate that. So for instance, if one's a CBT therapist, Everyone says they do CBT um, or anyone can claim they do it. But if someone, um, uh, let's say, is board certified, right, in cognitive therapy or has a certification from the American Academy of Cognitive Therapy, they clearly went the extra mile to get that certification um, and are probably going to be better um, than someone who just, I don't know, took a weekend workshop and who knows if they actually practice CBT or not. Um, and then the final thing I would say is you may not know what issue that you're dealing with. Um, if you do, some people sometimes have a sense. They, they may realize, for instance, I'm very anxious. They don't know what that means. They don't know if it means they have OCD or, or what the anxiety is or what the particular anxiety disorder is. But they know, they know that they're a worrier. They know they're anxious. They know there's something wrong on that spectrum of things. You might want to look for people who have particular expertise in that. Now, everyone will theoretically, again, claim that they treat depression and anxiety. But for instance, if you know, you're like, man, I wash my hands 30 times a day. I wonder if I have OCD. It looks and sounds like OCD from what my friends tell me or what I watched on Discovery Channel. Uh, you know, you may want to find someone who really specializes in that. So for instance, here in LA, there's, there are entire practices and clinics. All they do is OCD treatment. They're super specialized in it. They're world-class. They've published books on it. The, the people who run the place, they give talks on it. So when you look at their profile, you're like, this person is a true specialist, right? And so um, in that sense, uh, it can be very helpful if you have a particular issue and you have at least a sense of what that issue is to really go to someone who's good at that. Um, and I always share this as a personal example. I, I generally work with adults. Um, I, don't, I, I have colleagues who are child psychologists, but I don't, I don't do any kids. I don't do any couples. So if someone comes to me and they're like, you know, they're like, treat my 14-year-old uh, son or, uh, you know, I'm having marital problems and I want you to work with my wife. I refer to colleagues because I'm like, I could work with you, but I'm not going to be the best at it. And there's other folks that, quite frankly, can do that better than anyone else. So make sure that they're really competent in your area of expertise. One last final note is, unfortunately, I hate to make the analogy of like any other, you know, hairdresser, mechanic or, or any other service-oriented business 
is um, uh, word of mouth does matter, right? Like in terms, it's hard to tell whether um, the person just in terms of the interpersonal match is good. But, you know, if someone raves about their psychologist um, and then refer gives them that positive reference to you, Maybe you'll be good with them, maybe not, but it, but it's always going to be better than a random person. So if you if you are fortunate enough, especially geographically, to ask people around your network for a recommendation or a referral, people aren't very public about going to therapy, right? So most people won't be like, oh, I have this great therapist, you should go. But if you ask them, if you ask your network, let's say you know you ask your your group of friends or you ask even your company, right? You just say, hey, look, I, I hopefully there's no too much shame about that any recommendations for a great, whatever it is, dentist or psychologist, people will make really good referrals. Um, and that actually is an effective way of going about it. Um, I would say if you particularly know professionals, that's even better because you think about like a doctor's doctor, like who would the doctor go to? Cause they know better than anyone who's really good and who's not. Um, so people will ask me all, oftentimes as well. And I know, you know, probably people more local to my, my network. Um, but that can be a good way of going about it. One last uh, topic on this is this notion of doctor shopping. I'm actually not a fan of. Sometimes people do this thing where they're really obsessed with the match and I think it's a little overblown. I might have mentioned this. There's no research to suggest that demographic matching is a good predictor of outcomes. What I mean by that is if you're a 35-year-old white male, you do not need a 35-year-old white male to treat you. Or if you're a 65-year-old uh, gay Jewish woman, the only person, you th if you think that the only person can understand you is someone who's literally a clone of you, um, it's gonna be impossible for you to find the right sort of therapist. That You do not need to have the same condition or demographic background or religion to be able to effectively treat people. If that was true, then only ex-cancer patients could be oncologists, but we know that's not true. Um, so um, instead of looking for your spiritual match or your best friend, the number one thing, if you ask therapists themselves, if you ask someone, how do you, how does a therapist pick a therapist? The number one trait that they always say is competency. They just try to hire, they just try to find someone who's really, really good at what they're doing. And of course is like compassionate and warm um, you know, as well. But most of the time people in the profession are going to be good about that. So instead of, I, I don't recommend people literally go to three therapists at the same time and then shop around and be like, which one did I like the best? And then I'm going to pick them. It, it's almost like the dating analogy of like trying to have three girlfriends at once and then figure out which one you're going to marry. It, it, there's something weird about that dynamic. What I would suggest is if you're going to do it, do it sequentially, do your research, find a list, make a top three, go to one and see if it works. If you don't feel like it's working out within three sessions, five sessions, not, not that your life is better, but at least you're like, do I feel heard, understood and respected? Are, they, are we working on what we're working on that, that I wanna work on? And it seems like it's a good fit for me. So, so far so good. Um, those are three important questions you can ask yourself. Then yeah, continue with that therapist. If not, then feel free to go to your backup or your number two option. But I, I generally prefer the sequential approach because at least you make a kind of at least a commitment to trying to make the relationship work versus if you're seeing three people at once. First of all, it's expensive if you're going to try to see three three shrinks at the same time and then you know bet on the winning horse. It takes a lot of your time. It's like, can you imagine seeing three people in the span of a week or two? Um, and then also it, it you just sits there and it creates a weird competitive dynamic. 
And most people don't do that for like their other doctors. You don't go see three primary care physicians or three dentists to find a match. You, you just pick one. And if it works, you stay, you don't, you go to the next one. So I don't think psychologists are actually that different and people overblow the spiritual kismet and chemistry um, that is that is required. You, you need to make sure that you feel, like I said, heard, understood, respected, that the person, uh, you know, uh, is compassionate and empathic. Um, but it's not you're not trying to find a best friend or a significant other. So I think people need to downplay the that importance and just try to find people who are really, really good at what they're doing because that's actually the most important thing by far. A really competent psychologist, psychiatrist, or mental health professional will be able to get good results or better results with the majority of people than basically anyone else, even if the other person's like more demographically suited to them. Yeah, that's uh, that's all super helpful. Um, it's, it's great to hear you kind of elaborate on the nuances of it. Um, if I could just ask one more question, I mm -hmm. don't want to be that. That sure. That no, that's fine. Questions. Um, but 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 the, the second thing is like, so I've paid anything on a range from like one using insurance to two just paying like uh, anywhere. I think the most I went to was like four hundred a session. It was mm -hmm. ridiculous. So my my question is like, could you? Do you think that they're like in your experience, are therapists or kind of like the the, the rate that they charge? Is that at a certain point? Is it like like just unnecessary like colognes like when you're paying three hundred dollars for a cologne you know for a fact you're just paying for like the name of it like some guy that was on you know someone's podcast like yeah can you categorize that like do you know like okay at a certain point i'm paying for this guy's name he treated you know so and so person or was on so and so podcast like is that a thing like if you saw that some uh, doctor in this in this field was charging a certain price you'd be like that's just ridiculous like it doesn't matter if you treated Beyonce and her, and her teams like, <laughs> like that. Yeah. Um, surprisingly, not really. Um, there may be some exceptions in that. I don't know. Maybe there's some celebrity shrinks out there um, who charge like a ridiculous amount. Um, but I think they're few and far between. And unless you're going and seeking out Dr. Phil, um, most people aren't going to run into that issue. Um, so I, I would say for the most part, I wouldn't worry about it. And second of all, I actually do think there's an association between um, cost and quality. And the reason is you can't just make up a rate. I mean, you can, but no one will pay it. I could say I'm going to charge $10,000 for a session. And quite frankly, no one's going to pay me for that. So uh, people can make up stuff, but it kind of has to be what the market will bear, right? So if someone's charging $400 a session, um, and they're maintaining that rate over time, it's probably because they're able to get people to pay that. And then the question becomes, why are they able to charge more than other people? Let's say the going rate is closer to, I would say $200 an hour right now um, in a major metropolitan city, even if it's cash pay. Um, so if the person's able to charge 400, they have a greater demand essentially. Are they better? Not necessarily. But uh, usually demand and um, quality usually go hand in hand. The exception is if someone's a really exceptional marketer, like they're just in the media all the time and they get a lot of people. And so they're able to be like, okay, I'm only gonna see the folks you're willing to pay me 400 bucks. Or they have some, some referral source, like they made friends with all the pediatricians in Baltimore and they just send them all these clients and they're like, sure, I'm gonna charge more. Um, 
But I would say generally therapists are, are terrible in terms of uh, like marketing. So it's usually not for that reason. But you'd know, right? If they're a super slick person who's on a TV all the time, then I'd say, yes, they're, that may be more of that camp of the, those folks. Uh, but generally speaking, the people that I know that um, charge a lot are the people who can charge a lot and they can charge a lot because they have the demand and the skills to be able to do that. Um, I'm, I'm definitely in the camp. I, I probably charge in the top 1% of people. Um, but the reason I'm able to do that is because I have a very niche practice. Um, like I, there's very few people who are like a medical school professor and have been a tech CEO and 80% of my clients are tech CEOs. And so they're looking for something very particular. And second of all, they're mostly not paying out of pocket. They're actually paying through their companies. It's an operational expense to have executive coaching. And so they're able, I can charge more because I know uh, guilt-free that there's, I'm not like draining someone's bank account. It's like they're generally VC funded companies that have millions of dollars and them paying a few thousand a month is a drop in the bucket to them. They pay more for that for random software and office space. Um, so it's, it's, it's more than justifies it as an expense. So you have to kind of understand why they're charging that much um, and, and such. But look, it, it's never it's never a um, guarantee, but it's a correlation, right? Uh, I would actually um, uh, argue that the cologne analogy is an apt one because I am a cologne aficionado. I really like them. I have $30 colognes and I have $300 colognes and the $300 ones are better, like quite, quite frankly. Um, not always, but uh, if I had to randomly pick them, you know, they can just use better ingredients, right? Uh, and that, that money does go somewhere. So yes, I would say in cosmetics, that's true, right? Like is a $300 facial cream better than a $30 one? Probably not. But if you're talking about something that's like craft, which I would argue cologne making is, and same thing, therapy is a craft. Um, yeah, usually usually, usually you, you pay for what you get for. Uh, but here's, here's what I would say for everyone. You don't need to spend an arm and a leg um, to do so. I've actually turned away clients who are willing to pay me a lot of money, but it was clear that it would actually like, it, you know, cause financial distress because they're like, oh, I, I can't pay you this week. I can pay you this next week. And I told him, I was like, look, come back when you're in a better financial position. I, I try to discount it down to as low as I possibly can. Like sometimes I charge even a sixth of what I charge of other companies, uh, sorry, clients. Um, but if it gets to a point where it's unaffordable, like don't, don't financially harm yourself. Um, but I do think it's generally a good investment and most people do find ROI. Uh, I know it sounds crazy to pay whatever hundred or even hundreds of dollars per week or month. But if you're talking about literally your mental health and well-being, there's no price on that. If you literally think about billionaires who can afford anything uh, and, you know, like a Howard Hughes kind of type where they have OCD and they, they spend their the end of their life covered in filth uh, and die alone because they have untreated mental health issues. Uh, I don't know, you can't, you can't really put a price on that. So obviously though, you know, the, the, the price that you put on it is, is contingent on getting, getting benefit out of it. So, um, you know, worst case scenario, you, you, you spend a few hundred bucks, um, doesn't work out for you. Sure, you spend more than that trying a new restaurant. So think about it like that. It's not the worst loss in the world. And the upside quite frankly is great, where as opposed to a nice dinner, you feel good for a few hours, uh, with a good therapist, you'll feel good for the rest of your life. Awesome, folks. Um, well, it's 7 o'clock here in Los Angeles. Thank you so much for joining us. A lot of really interesting questions. So thank you, everyone, who joined us on Discord. Thanks to everyone who joined us on Instagram. Thanks to everyone who joined us on Clubhouse. Thanks for the great questions. Hope this was informative, helpful, instructive, and practical so that you can use it in your everyday lives. 
because uh, that's the goal at Maximus is, you know, to make people, um, you know, the men in our community and, and the people around the world uh, healthier in a very practical and pragmatic way.